Open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 10. And today we come back to this 10th chapter once again, and we'll be here for a little while. And this chapter concerns the calling of the 12 apostles. Apostle is a word that means to send out ones that are sent. And in this passage of Scripture, this part of Scripture, this is where Jesus transforms 12 men who were his disciples into apostles. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 5, and stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not in the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy and therefore, and there abide till ye go thence. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless as we uh, try to expound upon the truths that we find in this portion of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We spent some time in the last couple of weeks going over these 11 verses of Scripture. And these are part of a longer section that go down to verse number 42 which are instructions for ministry. Here Jesus is transforming 12 ordinary guys, just 12 men that he had called, transforming them into ministers of the gospel or the kingdom of God. Now the first section deals with the primary work of ministry, which is the preaching of the gospel. And then the next section that we're going to start next week gives a description of how the gospel message will be received. How will people react to this message that the apostles were told to preach? They were to say that judgment is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so how will people react to that message that they must repent of their sins, they must trust Christ, or else they will face God's wrath for unbelief? And then the third section of the chapter ends with Jesus talking about the high cost of following him. And that's because becoming a Christian and following Jesus Christ is a very serious commitment. Saving faith is a life-altering faith. And so saving faith changes a person. And Christ says that for you to be my follower, you have to die to everything that you are. You have to surrender everything that you have. You have to be willing to reject this world system and give it all up to him. So the whole chapter, beginning in verse number 5, is a very challenging section, uh, and it's really directed to all believers. But what we're doing here is concentrating on or focusing on the calling of ministers. 
Now, these men were ordinary men in one sense, but at the same time, they were very highly specialized men. And that's because of their calling. They're called into ministry. And these are men that are model for all ministers for all time. That is, these are models for men who have the job of shepherding God's people, leading the congregation of God's people. And Jesus teaches them here without any sugarcoating. I mean, he doesn't tell them it's going to be easy. He doesn't say, you can expect a fine time if you follow me. But he gives them all the hardships that they're going to face, all the way down through the end of verse 42. And when you come to the end of that section, and you find out everything that Jesus said to these men who were to be his preachers, not one of them is going to be able to say, I didn't expect this. This is not what I bargained for. So Jesus tells them right up front what ministry is going to be like. Now, to briefly catch you up on where we are, we, we've discussed thus far the minister's commission. The minister has been commissioned under the authority of God, under heaven's king. He's commissioned under orders. Just like a military commander gives an order, he expects that those that are ordered will obey his commands. And so a person who's been called into the ministry of Christ is compelled to do this. It's not something that he says, I'll do it if I want, I'll consider that, I might do that. But a minister is actually compelled to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, Jesus chose these 12 apostles, and they didn't ask to be chosen. They didn't ask about this. He compelled them to follow. And a good example is what we find of Matthew, who's the author of this gospel. Because Matthew was there sitting at the receipt of custom. He was a tax collector He was making a good living doing what he was doing, extorting money from the people. Jesus walked up to him and he said, follow me. Matthew didn't debate about it. Matthew didn't say, let me think about that for just a little while. But the Bible says that Matthew got up and he followed him. So it's a compulsory calling. And yet there's not one of these men that followed Jesus against their will. They wanted to do this. And that's because... Salvation and call to the ministry, that is a supernatural work of God in a person's heart. We don't follow God out of the goodness of his heart. There's not a person here who ever followed Jesus simply out of the goodness of his heart. And that's because, folks, there is no goodness in us. We have to be changed. And when God changes us, that's when we begin to follow him willingly. So these men had God's authority to preach. And the evidence of that authority is found in verse number 1. Jesus gave them power, same power that he had to cast out demons and to heal people. They could heal people of all types of diseases. And if you wanted to look at that power that he gave him, these abilities to do miracles as a means of credentialing them, of showing people that they really were come from God, then you could look at that. Jesus proved that he was the Son of God by many miracles that he did. We just read about that in the book of Hebrews. I said, uh, you'll you'll see it here uh, when we come into this passage. His message was validated by miracles. And so when he sent the apostles out to preach, their authority to preach was established by all the miracles that they could do. Why should anyone believe these men? This is why Jesus gave them miracles. Here are 12 men, never been to a religious school don't have all the religious training that you would think a preacher of the gospel would have or a preacher of the kingdom of God. They had none of that. And so why should anyone believe these 12 ordinary men, mostly a collection of fishermen, one the tax collector, another 
who was uh, considered to be a terrorist and who else among that group and what they did. Why should anyone believe them? They were preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why would anyone believe them any more than a hundred or thousand prophets that had come before and said, the world is going to end. You need to get right with God. Why should anyone believe them? Well, this is why Jesus gave them the miracles. They were believable because nobody else could do the miracles that they did. So there were thousands of people in Israel dying from many different illnesses. And these apostles came and they had the power to heal and to cast out demons. And so they had instant credibility. Supernatural ability means a supernatural source. And so that proved their commission to preach came from the authority of God. Then we also noticed that it was more than this, that it was also a demonstration of the minister's compassion. See, if Jesus wanted to prove his authority or prove their authority, he could have picked many, many different ways to do that. He he could have picked a lot of supernatural activities to show that he was the Son of God and and to show that these disciples were called by him. Jesus fed 5,000 people, and he fed them with five loaves and two fish. He could have just as easily taken all of those stones in the land of Israel and said, turn around there and pick one up, and then it was a loaf of bread as they picked it up and put it into their hands. He could have done that if he'd wanted to. He could have leaped tall buildings with a single bound. He could have said, shoot me with an arrow, stab me with a sword, and then taken that sword or that arrow and pulled it out and made a toothpick out of it. He could have done that. There are lots of choices of supernatural activities, but the ones that Jesus particularly chose to use was the power to heal. That's because Jesus wanted to help people. He had a heart for people. He sorrowed over conditions, the conditions of the people, people that had leprosy, people that were paralyzed, people that were blind, people that were crippled. He had compassion on them, And he wanted his disciples also to be known for their compassion. And so he made a very important statement in verse number 8. He says, freely ye have received, freely give. So he says, you can't charge for this. You go out there and you heal people, you're not to take anything from them. Don't ask for anything. You've been given freely. You've been given the gospel freely. You've You've been saved freely. You've been given the gift of God freely. And so you go out there and you give them the same thing. Don't charge them for any of this. And so when those apostles went out, they went out poor. And they came back poor because they never did charge for healing people. So they healed people. But that physical healing was not really the goal. That's not the primary goal. Now, it's good. It's good for people to be healed. It's good for ministers to show compassion. But the primary work of the minister of Christ concerns the soul. The body dies, but the soul doesn't die. The flesh decays, but not the soul. And their message is that judgment is coming, and the everlasting soul is going to spend eternity in one of two places. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So what these apostles were to do was to go out there to people that were on the broad path, people that are on the way to destruction. And quite frankly, that's everybody without the gospel. 
And he was to go out, they were to go out there and preach the gospel to them and get the people off the broad path onto the narrow path that leads to eternal life. So a minister has to have compassion on the physical, but more importantly, he has to have compassion for souls, for people that are dying without hope of eternal life. And so this is why he brings them the good news of the gospel. Now that catches us up on the previous. And today I want to finish this section with with two important aspects of Jesus' teaching. And if you look at verse number 9, Jesus said, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. You might want to underline that last phrase, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Now, thirdly, we're going to talk about the minister's compensation. Now, I want to want to take you back to the 8th chapter for just a moment and the excitement that was generated with Jesus' ministry. He was becoming very famous. He, he was achieving celebrity status. Crowds were following him everywhere. And it wasn't just a matter of believing in him. People wanted to get close to him. I mean, if, if we were to compare it to today, Jesus had what you would say, rock star status. Everybody wanted to get close to Jesus. You know that famous guy, Jesus? I know him. I've spoken to him. I got his autograph. This is the way people thought. They wanted to get close to Jesus. It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in all of their lives. I mean, here in a, in a, in a land, in a, in a world where everything is just like it was yesterday, tomorrow's going to be just like it is today, in a place where there wasn't a lot of hope, Poor people had nothing to look forward to. Sick people couldn't be well. We can't imagine how quickly the fame of Jesus spread. And so in chapter 8, that fame was building, and there were many people that said, I am a disciple of Jesus. They had no idea what that meant. They didn't know what Jesus required. We had, they hadn't gotten to chapter 10 yet. They hadn't read what Jesus was going to say about what following him was going to be like. They just wanted to be disciples. And so there were two types of these that came to Jesus, and we'll look at this in verses 19 through 22. Two men followed Jesus down to the seashore, and they wanted to get into the boat with Jesus. They wanted to be a part of his ministry. In verse number 19, it says, And a certain scribe, now this is a religious man, a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Jesus was telling both of these disciples, or both of these men, who were potential disciples, If you want to follow me, then you have to leave everything behind. And you have to understand that tonight, you don't know where you're going to lay your head. You don't know where you're going to sleep tonight if you follow me. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from if you follow me. And then the second guy, he's a really interesting case because he said, I want to go too, but I have to go and bury my father first. And that was a really interesting way that Jesus responded to him because Jesus is a person known for compassion, isn't he? Certainly, Jesus is a man of compassion, but his answer seems to be really insensitive toward this man who just lost his father. His father died, and all he wants to do is go and make sure that he can bury him properly. 
But we really don't know the whole story when he said this because what he meant was, I, I want to come, but before I go, I want to take care of family matters. When my dad dies, I have an inheritance that's coming. And when I receive that inheritance, I'll be able to come and follow you. All of my needs will then be taken care of. I'll I'll have everything that I need. I won't have to worry about working. I'll have my inheritance, and I can follow you, Jesus, everywhere that you go. See, this man's father wasn't dead yet. Not really dead. He just meant that he's going to die. I've got a family inheritance that's coming. And, And we understand better why Jesus refused this man when we read Matthew chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. And it's because Jesus expected his disciples to live by faith. And living by faith means that God would supply through his providence. All of their needs would be supplied by God's providence. So he didn't want them to take anything with them. He says you can't put any money in your wallet, no script. That means like a knapsack that you put your food in. Don't, don't worry about that. Don't bring that. Don't worry about a change of clothes. Don't worry about your shoes. God is going to take care of all your needs. If you trust God, he's given you a work to do, and he's going to make sure that you have everything that you need to do his work. Now, it kind of reminds us when Israel left Egypt, that was the fulfillment that God a promise that God had made hundreds of years before. And God said to Israel, he said, we're going to Canaan, and you're going to have to trust me for getting there. Now, there they were down in Egypt, and they were in bondage. They were slaves. They had Pharaoh, who was the greatest ruler in the world at that time, and they had the Egyptian army that was watching over them. But God said, we're leaving Egypt, and you follow me, I'm going to get you there. I'm not going to comment on the many failings that they had in getting to to the promised land, but I will tell you, God gave them food to eat. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and God gave them food to eat, and he gave them water to drink. And miraculously, amazingly, for 40 years they were wondering, and their clothes didn't wear out. They didn't even get holes in their shoes. Walking for 40 years in the wilderness, God took care of them. Now, you see, it's all a matter of trusting God. And Jesus said, I'm going to send you out by faith. And he said, you can't charge for this, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to take care of you. See, God has providential care. That's a promise that he makes to all of his children, not just ministers. All of his children are in the providential care of God, but the minister has to believe that for sure. How is he going to teach his people that God takes care of them if the minister doesn't believe it himself? And so this was a matter of walking by faith. Go and expect that God will take care of you. But how will he take care of you? How will God take care of his ministers? Perk up, listen now, because this is where you come in. The last part of verse number 10 says, For the workman is worthy of his meat. God certainly takes care of his ministers by his providence, but he has a means of... Of doing that. And what is the means? Well, God takes care of them. Their needs will be supplied by God's people. The needs of the minister will be supplied by God's people. Now, these aren't opposing or conflicting statements. God's people should take care of God's ministers. And in God's providence, he makes sure that they will. You see, God puts it in the hearts of people to treat the minister well. 
And the minister can expect that the Holy Spirit is going to move the people to do so. So a minister is not to charge for this. He's not to set a fee for ministering because he doesn't have to. God is going to make sure that the needs of the minister are met through his people. For the workman is worthy of his meat. Let's expand on that statement for just a little bit. Most of you have jobs, or you had a job. Most of you had a job, and you know how it works. Uh, When you go to work, you punch a time card. Maybe you log in at a computer or something like that. But your employer has a way of keeping track that you're at work and you're on the job. And when the end of the week comes, or whatever your payroll period might be, when the end of the week comes, you know that there's going to be a check waiting for you. You have put in the work, you've given fair labor, and so you expect that you're going to receive the reward for your labor. You're going to receive a check for having work. Now, the economy works that way. Nobody complains about that. Nobody, nobody has a problem with things working like that. Now, some of you might think that you don't get enough, and you don't get paid as you should. You might want more, but the principle is this. If you work, you get paid. Even a workhorse or, or an ox that pulls a plow that grinds the meal into the flour, the farmer is going to give him something to eat. And if he doesn't, that horse, that ox is going to die. The farmer has to feed him. He gives him some of the wheat. God even had a law for that. God said, you can't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. That's found in Deuteronomy 25, verse number 4. Well, the apostle Paul took that same principle that's in the Old Testament, and he applied that to ministers of the gospel. I want you to turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. He said that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And he was talking there about the priest of the Old Testament and comparing to them that the people would bring meat for sacrifices or the animal for sacrifices. And the priest was able to keep some of that meat that was made in sacrifice after it was through. And so that's how the priests were supported. That's part of, their, of uh, taking care of them. Now, if you look here in 1 Timothy 5, verse number 17, the apostle Paul says, let the elders... And that word means, he means the same thing as the pastors, the the leaders of the church. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So there you see the principle of the ox. He gets to eat the corn. But notice the last part of verse number 18. It says the laborer is worthy of his reward. I wonder where the Apostle Paul got that idea. Where, where, did he, where, where would he pick up something like that? Well, maybe it's by what Jesus said. The workman is worthy of his meat. The laborer is worthy of his reward. And Paul says here that elders, ministers, that do the job well are worthy of double honor. Now, folks, I'm not campaigning for anything today. I'm blessed in the way that the church takes care of me. You take care of me well. But I do want to point out something, that it shouldn't be a burden to God's people. It shouldn't be a begrudging thing that you do. It shouldn't be that you do it with grumbling and complaining and with jealousy or anything like that. Because if the ministry is valuable to you and it's blessing you, then the Word of God teaches that you should return that blessing. 
Now, there's some people who say, well, you, you can't put a value on ministry. And so they don't. They don't put any value on it. They, they don't put any value on paying the preacher, not just that, but they don't put any value on the place to worship. They don't put any value in the fact that we have a building here where we can come together and meet as God's people and hear the word of God preached. They don't put any value that on a hot summer day that you can sit here in air conditioning and in comfort or in a cold winter day that the heat is on and you can also sit there in comfort. They don't put any value on having lights in the building. Last Sunday night we saw how valuable having lights in the building is when the electricity went off around here. They don't put any value in those things. But let me tell you something, that when it comes to their cable TV getting cut off, there's a lot of value in that. If you can't take a hot shower in the morning, there's a lot of value in that. So they're willing to put out the money for that and pay the electricity bills and all those kinds of things. But these people will not give to God's work. They sit on their wallets, and you're not going to budge them off of it with dynamite. They're not going to give. And they come every Sunday, and they take it all in. They enjoy the same things. They've got the building that they're in. They've got the lights that are on. They've got the air conditioning that's on. But they won't give to God's work. Now, the principle is here, and it's found throughout the Bible, that God says that God's work is supported by God's people. And I don't want to be too hard on you today, but let me just ask you a question. Isn't it the same Holy Spirit that works in all of us? And if the Holy Spirit tells this man right here to help support the ministry, is he going to tell you something else? Is the Holy Spirit divided? Does he say, well, there's only a part of the people that really need to abide by this principle? Does the Holy Spirit teach us something different? Well, I would submit to you that the same Holy Spirit is in all of us, and the reason that some do not support the ministry is this. They're not listening to the Holy Spirit. They're not listening to what he says because the same Spirit is going to tell all of us to support God's ministry. That's what the Bible says. It's as plain as that. You can't get away from this. Now, how do you expect then that Jesus would tell the apostles, don't take anything with you because I'm going to take care of you? How is he going to tell them that? Well, he says the workman is worthy of his meat. He's worthy of his reward. And he's telling them that God will move upon his people to take care of his ministers. God will work in their hearts so they'll desire to take care of his ministers. Now, having said all of that, you've got to keep your eye on the preacher that's always asking for money. Watch out for those ministries where the preacher is rich and he promises that you will be too if you just keep sending in the money. That is the worst lie out of hell. It's the worst lie out of hell for preachers to tell people that God promised that you would be rich. If you just have enough faith and you just keep sending in the money, God is going to bless you with all these things. God is going to make you materially wealthy. Well, read the rest of this chapter. Read the rest of the New Testament and find for me a verse that says that God promised anybody material wealth. Now, he does talk a lot about giving up everything. He talks a lot about giving up for the ministry. He talks about sacrificing. But I don't find a scripture anywhere where it says that God's going to make anybody rich because they give to the ministry. He doesn't promise wealth. You know the reason God doesn't promise it? Because God does not want you to depend on that. He doesn't want you to have that carrot in, your, in front of you all of the time. 
Now, the apostles could have been very wealthy men. All they needed to do was to use the TV preacher's tactics. That's all they needed to do. I'll heal you. You send the money and I'll heal you. You'll get better. I promise you, you will. But the apostles, every single one of them, died poor. But they were rich toward God. Now, let me make one more point here before I move on. We notice in verse number 11 that there are people who will be willing to take the preacher in. There will be people that are willing to house him. Verse 11 says, And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. Now, in those days when you came into town, there weren't 17 hotels on every exit. And you just choose wherever you want to stay. It wasn't like that. People that were traveling had to stay in other people's homes. And the people of Israel were taught about this. They were taught to be hospitable. Take strangers in. Now, when you get invited into somebody's house, you don't always know what you're going to find there. You don't know what the conditions are going to be like. I remember when I was young and, and uh, my father was preaching in a rural community in the hills of Kentucky. Every Sunday, we'd get invited to homes for Sunday dinner. And I remember that there were people that were very poor that would invite us, but they were very hospitable people. And I think I told you about this before. I mean, I, I particularly remember this incident, but it's not the only time that something like this happened. But we were invited to go to some people's house on a Sunday afternoon, and they were very poor people. And we went in and we sat down at the table and the front door was open and the back door was open. And as we were eating, the chickens walked through and the guineas walked through. And if you dropped something on the floor, there was a chicken to pick that up for you. So I don't know, maybe that was their vacuum cleaner or something. But they, the, you, you don't know what you, you don't know to expect when you go into a person's house. You show up at the door and you ask him for a place to stay and you stay there. That's what Jesus said. Now here in Rona Park... We don't have to worry too much about chickens walking through the house. And it's not very likely that I'm going to show up at your house tonight and say, I need a place to stay. I really need some place to stay. Back then, they needed it. Back then, they needed food. They needed places to stay. And they were hospitable people. And they were to go there, and they were to stay there. And it didn't matter if there were chickens walking through the house. And it didn't matter if they cooked with garlic. You just eat it anyway. You just got (laughs) to stay with those people. Now, let's go on here and get the last principle from these verses. That's the minister's compensation. And fourthly is the minister's charges. Let me explain to you what I mean by charges. I'm not not using that as a financial term. I mean, we already know that a preacher is not to charge for preaching. A charge is someone who is given over into the care of another person. And I'll tell you quite simply, the reason that I use this word, because I'm trying to give you all C's, kind of help you remember what the the message is about here today. So a minister's charges, this is the way the word is used here, a minister's charges is everybody that he comes in contact with. See, as far as a minister is concerned, every person that he meets is a potential believer. Now, he doesn't know exactly how they're going to react to the gospel, and he doesn't, he's not supposed to know. Because God doesn't put gold stars on all the houses that will believe, people that will believe. And he doesn't plant poison ivy around all the houses where people don't believe. So you go up to a house and you knock on the door. You don't know what to expect. All of the people, though, are in the minister's care. They're the minister's charges. And when he comes to town, he doesn't pick and choose which kind of people that he wants to talk with and to stay with. Now, verse number 12 says that, 
When you come into a house, salute it. And that means when you walk up to that house, you knock on the door, you say hello, you greet that person, and when you knock on the door, you're going to be met by one of two kinds of people. Verse number 13 tells the difference between them. He says, And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now he says, Some of these people will be worthy. And that simply means that they will be receptive to the gospel. And some of them will not be worthy. And they're going to kick and they're going to cuss and they're going to scream and they're going to tell you to hit the road. In those days, it was common to walk up to a house and just ask a stranger, can I come in? Can I share a meal with you? Will you give me a place to stay? So you walk up to a house, and the Jews, this was common with them. As I said, they were already taught in the Old Testament to be hospitable people. And so the Jews would customarily come up to a house, and somebody would answer the door, and they would say, shalom. And that means peace. But it means more than peace. It means wellness. It means prosperity. It's like coming up to a person and giving them a blessing. And maybe we would put it like this. God bless your house, brother. God bless your family. Well, what happens next? Well, Jesus Jesus has instructions about this. First is how to treat the receptive. First of all, he talks about how to treat people that are receptive to the gospel of Christ. He says, if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. That means that you're supposed to show gratitude for their hospitality. That means when you come there and and they're receptive to the gospel of Christ, you pray for that family. You share God's word with them. And then he says, then you can use that house as a base. You can use that as a place where you can stay and you can go out and teach other people. And so when people are receptive to the gospel, you thank God for them. And you return their kindness by feeding their spiritual hunger and thirst return their kindness by feeding their spiritual hunger and thirst with God's word and so what the minister does he pours his energy into those people and that's why it's such a joy to minister in a place like this church see I I don't have to spend all week long trying to figure out a gimmick to keep you interested in the word of God I don't I don't have to go interview rock bands I don't have to find entertainers, and I don't have to get clowns. I don't have to go get Christian comedians and come to church here to talk to you because that's not what you want. You want the Bible. You are content to hear the Word of God. The Bible is why you're here and not for any other reason. And it's a pleasure when you can preach to people like that. There are lots of preachers every week. They're trying to figure out how to be clever. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep the people interested. And they're going to blow them over with something new every week. Substance doesn't matter in what they say. That's not really the important thing. It's how much flair do you have? How, how can you give them the message in that way? You've got to have the pizzazz. And I'm thankful because you know I don't have any pizzazz. I don't have anything like that to offer. And so if you want to be entertained, you already know this. This is not the place to come. You don't come here for entertainment because I, I don't have any. When a preacher is concerned only about the Bible and what the Word says, and he gets a group like people here in Berean, he just wants to bless them. He just wants to give them all the Word of God that he can. He wants to study the Word of God and just be able to give them that knowledge of what God says. And some people will be receptive to the gospel. They will believe, and then God saves them. And when God saves them, you want to give them as much as the Word of God that you can. 
But when you first meet people, you don't know. Some of them will be receptive. And if they are, you stay there and you help them grow. But on the other hand, Jesus teaches how to treat the rejectors. Because there are some who will not hear the message and they will reject the message of Christ. Now, this might be a little bit hard for us to catch at first because we're not used to greeting people with a blessing. We've lost that in our society. We meet people and we say, Hi, how are you doing? And we're thinking, no need to answer that question. I'm not interested anyway. But the Jewish people, they would meet people and I said they would say, Shalom, a blessing be on your house. But what if they did that and the people were angry and met them with scorn and contempt? Well, that Jewish person would say, Now, wait a minute. I just said peace and I just said prosperity. And that guy railed on me. How am I going to get that blessing back? I should have never given that guy a blessing. Well, this seems a little bit strange, but here Jesus is teaching them a way to show that they were taking the blessing back. Now, taking the blessing back was to show God's contempt because they had rejected the message of Christ. So he said, I'm going to give you, here's what you need to do. You need to give a visual demonstration that you're taking that blessing back. That's in verse number 14. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words... When you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. And that wasn't to show their personal contempt because we know by reading other places in the Word of God, we are never to show contempt for people no matter how they treat us. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And what he actually meant was, suffer through the indignity. When people treat you wrong, you suffer through the indignity. That's the personal indignity. So personally... When we're ill-treated for our belief in Christ, we don't respond to that. We're not supposed to respond to that. But this is not talking about that. Uh, You know, we, we don't respond that way because it's not about us anyway. It's about Jesus. But don't think that God is not displeased by those who treat his people badly. And don't ever think that God overlooks the sin of rejecting Christ. This is serious. Now, the way to take the blessing back was to give a demonstration of God's displeasure. So if you walked away from a Jewish home, and they just treated you, this is with the gospel, I mean, and they've just treated you badly, you shook off the dust of your feet. And that was the same thing as saying to them, you are a heathen. Let me explain to you why it works that way. The Jewish people had this as a custom. This is what they did. They understood the meaning of this. Now, in those days, as you well know, they didn't have paved highways. There's no blacktop, no concrete to travel on. So they're traveling along dusty roads all of the time. And as they would travel, they're wearing these sandals, and their feet get very, very dirty. It was especially true that when a Jew was traveling through Gentile territory, that before he entered into the land of Israel again, that he'd come to the border and then he would shake off the dust of his feet. And he did that because he didn't want to carry that defiled Gentile dust into God's holy land. And so they'd come up to the border, first thing he does, shake all the dust off his feet and then step over into the land of Israel. So the Jews understood what was going on here. So if you came up to a person's house, imagine the kind of effect that would have on those Jewish people if you said, you are just like a Gentile. I mean, if you stood at their front door and you shook the dust off of your feet, that is about as much contempt as you could heap on them. That was to show not personal contempt, 
but that was to show them how much that God is displeased when a person rejects the gospel of Christ. Paul and Barnabas did that in Acts chapter 13. They went to the Jews first, just like these disciples were told to do. And when the Jews didn't believe, and when they treated them harshly, the word of God says they shook off the dust of their feet, and then they went and preached to the Gentile people. And that was to show God's contempt. Now, just to show you how angry that God is about this, you look at the next verse, verse number 15. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What is the wickedest place that you can think of? I'm not talking about San Francisco. I'm talking about in the Bible. What's the wickedest place that you can think of? Where, where were the worst sins imaginable practice? Who? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, those were the worst places in all of Bible history. God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He burned that whole place up so that archaeologists today can't even find a trace of where those cities were. They surmise that they're somewhere down close to the southern end of the Dead Sea, but they don't really know because God so utterly destroyed those places. But there's something interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is they didn't have any witness there. They didn't have any witness of the truth there. Abraham's nephew Lot was there. But he wasn't much of a witness. He spent all this time there, and no one had ever been converted by him. His own sons-in-law didn't believe anything he had to say. His wife, when, when the angels came and said, you've got to get out of here, God's going to destroy this place. And Lot gathered up his, his wife and his daughters, and they took off. His wife was so reluctant to leave that as she was going, she looked back longingly to stay in Sodom and Gomorrah because she loved the place, and God turned her into a pillar of salt. Lot was not a testimony there. There was no gospel witness in Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, Jesus is talking about places where the gospel has been preached, where the message of Christ has been given. The gospel has been attested by miracles. People are healed. Demons are cast out. Dead people are raised to life. And yet the people reject the gospel, having ample opportunity to believe it. And he says, it's going to be worse for them in the judgment than it will be for those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what that tells us? It tells us that hearing and rejecting the gospel is no light matter. If you hear it and you don't believe, you would be better off never having heard it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook if you don't hear it, but you'd be better off not hearing it than to hear it and not believe. And let me tell you something else. Some of you come to church... And you know that you're living in sin. You know that there's stuff going on in your life. You know there's things that shouldn't be there. And you come to church and you hear it preached about. And you hear what you're supposed to do. You hear it all the time. And so what do you think that God expects from you? What do you think that God thinks of that? When you hear it over and over again, but you go on and you do it anyway. Two issues are very important here. Number one, if you hear the gospel and you don't believe, then judgment's going to be worse for you. And number two, if you claim to be a Christian and you continually live in sin and you will not follow Christ and you give no evidence that you are a Christian, you probably aren't. And so what's happened is you have compounded the condemnation. Because you came here and you heard the word preached, you heard what you were supposed to do, and you refused to do it. How much judgment do you think is going to be heaped upon you for disobeying what you clearly know that you're supposed to do? 
So how do we treat Christ rejectors? Well, we have to understand that Jesus' instruction here is a, is a, visual, uh, a visual demonstration to people that are obviously hardened in their unbelief. These are people that there is no reaching them. Signs and wonders don't do any good. The supernatural has no effect upon them. They just flat out refuse to believe. So Jesus tells them, you are not to waste valuable time on those people. There are so many other people that need to hear the gospel of Christ. Now, I can't do signs and wonders. I can't do anything the apostles did. I can plead with you. I can preach to you. If you come back next Sunday, I'm going to do the same thing again that I'm doing today. I'm going to encourage you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know something. I'm going to keep preaching that. But one of these days, the gospel message, the opportunity to receive the gospel message for you is going to be finalized. Someday it's going to be finalized. And you have to be thinking about this. I've heard it. I've been told about it. Have I reached the point of no return? Has God shaken off the dust of his feet against me? And you know there's a way you can know that? Just think about it. There's a way that you can know when God has shaken off the dust of his feet against you. Now, Jesus is making ministers. He needed some people to preach the gospel, so he commissioned them. And he taught them to be compassionate. He told them not to worry about their compensation. You're going to be supported. Just go do it. I'll give you what you need to eat. I'll give you your place to stay. I'll make sure that my people take care of you. And he said that there are some people that will believe and some won't. The ones that believe, they're all in your charge. And the ones that believe, you bless them with ministry. You bless them. You give them the word of God. You keep doing good works for them. Give all to them that you can give to them. And then he said, there's some that will not believe. And your responsibility is to warn the unbelievers that judgment is coming. God is not happy, and God's wrath is going to be poured out. So this is God's ministry. They are called to preach under God's authority, and they had a message to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that we learn in your word today, and what a solemn warning that we have here. And it's good information to know how you promised to take care of ministers and And the message that you've given us to preach, the commission that we have, the compassion that we are to have, it's all good information. But it's not just for informational purposes. It's not just so I can teach people how ministers are to act and live and do. But there's a personal application that needs to be made to every single person in this room today. We all need to have a part of your ministry. All need to have a part in the support of it. We all need to be telling people about you. And then we have a personal responsibility to live in the way that you've told us to live, to obey your commandments. And Lord, we know that you have promised judgment. Judgment is coming. And the right response has to be given. And I just pray, Lord, you'd open up the hearts of people today to understand they must give the right response. So we thank you, Lord. Bless our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.